As a 24-year-old Marine Corps officer, Seth Moulton led an infantry platoon into Baghdad during the 2003 invasion of Iraq. He would serve four tours in Iraq that included some of the bloodiest fighting of the war, in places like Nazaria and Najaf, names of Iraqi towns that once rolled off the tongue but are barely remembered today by most Americans. It was this formative experience of leading Americans in combat that would set him on a course of public service. In 2014, Moulton ran for Congress from Massachusetts and won. He was a man in a hurry and a bit of an upstart. It wasn't long before Moulton was agitating for new Democratic leadership in the House, calling for Nancy Pelosi's ouster as minority leader and generational change in a party that he believed was drifting too far to the left. But in 2018, the Democrats took back the House and re-elected Pelosi as Speaker. That apparently hasn't deterred Moulton. He thinks he's found another way to bringing about a changing of the guard in the Democratic Party. He's running for president and he sees a path to the White House. His argument, Donald Trump's biggest vulnerability is national security. And Moulton's combat experience in Iraq and foreign policy expertise gives him the best chance of defeating Trump. We'll talk to Moulton about what he views as the biggest national security threats the United States faces, including Iran and Russia. We'll ask him about his views on impeaching Trump. And we'll press him on why he thinks a Phillips Andover graduate with three Harvard degrees, who's a moderate in a party that is becoming increasingly progressive, should be America's next commander-in-chief. And we'll also talk to a former Donald Trump ghostwriter who, in a Yahoo News exclusive, describes what it was like to be by the celebrity mogul's side when he was losing more than a billion dollars on this week's episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. All right. Well, we're pleased to welcome in studio Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts, one of the more recent entrants in the vast and I think still growing uh, field of Democrats hoping to defeat Donald Trump uh, in the 2020 election. Welcome to Skullduggery. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay. So you're a two-term member of Congress. You're in your third term now, correct? Not a lot of national name recognition yet. You're kind of a preppy white guy with three <laughs> Harvard degrees and a moderate in a very fired up kind of uh, progressive Democratic Party right now in terms of the base. So how are you going to break through? Like, I'm what's a Marine your... who can beat Donald yeah. Trump. And I wouldn't be here if not without that background. And I'm the only one in the race that has the background, the experience of actually leading Americans in combat in one of the most divisive wars in history, in the middle of the Iraq War, a war that I myself disagreed with, I had to get an incredibly diverse group of Americans from all over this country, all united behind a common mission to serve America. And I think that's exactly the kind of leadership we need from the next commander in chief in a terribly divided time. We need to get Americans united behind a common mission to, to make sure that every American has good, affordable health care, the best health care in the world to win the green tech revolution so that we not only address climate change, but we do it by growing American jobs, to get guns out of our schools for good, and to make America safe and strong. I'm the only candidate who is taking on Donald Trump, not just as president, 
but as commander-in-chief. And that's important because it's actually where he's weakest. You know, for too long, the Republican parties and Trump, the Republican Party and Trump have tried to own, you know, issues of security and strength and what patriotism is all about. But Donald Trump's not a patriot. I am a patriot. Congress, I believe let, in this country. Let me, let me just take you right back to the first thing you said. Um, you served in Iraq. Um, four tours, I believe? I did four tours. Four yeah. tours. And you disagreed with the war. You um, thought the Iraq war was a mistake. How do you risk your life for a war that you didn't believe was worth fighting? Because I didn't risk my life for that war. I risked my life for my fellow Americans, the Marines I served with, and for anyone back home who would have had to go in my place if I didn't show up. And even in the midst of this war I disagreed with, every single day I was able to have an impact on the lives of other people, an impact on how the war was fought, on the Iraqis, and of course on my fellow Marines. It's the, it was the proudest moment of my life to get to serve this country. Even, even in a war I disagreed with. And that's why I kept going back. But as you look back on it, was the American presence in Iraq worth it? No, it probably wasn't. But I never want another American to have to serve in my place. So I've never you... shied away from serving this country. I mean, that's why I signed up to serve in the first place. I signed up before 9-11, or I decided to join before 9-11. My training started right. just after. So, and I didn't even know I was going to get into the Iraq war. But the story that I'm telling you is a story that's shared by countless American veterans who serve not just because they believe in a war, but because they don't want another American to have to go in their place, because they believe in this country. And that's what being a veteran is all about. And, and that's exactly what I'm taking to this race. I believe in America. For all our troubles, for all our divisiveness right now, I truly believe in this country. I believe in it so much that I still want to serve it. You know, that's why I ran for Congress in 2014, to take on the Washington establishment and to try to prevent what got us into Iraq from happening again. And that's why I'm running for president today, because I believe this is the best way I can serve our country. And I want other Americans to believe that, too, to believe so much in our country that they want to serve it. You know, I want to ask you a little bit about your, your sort of core pitch, that, that experience uh, leading uh, Americans in combat in Iraq prepares you for this job. And one of the things that's interesting in your biography, when you ran for Congress the first time, you did not let voters know that you had won the Bronze Star and a uh, Marine Corps medal as well. I think you said that uh, until the Boston Globe revealed it, no one knew about that. I think you said that uh, it wasn't about medals or honors, it was about uh, getting the job done. On the other hand, your sort of core pitch here is that it's what you learned and the experiences you had leading Americans in combat, uniting them behind this mission that you talked about that prepares you for this job. So aren't you going to have to start talking about those experiences and what you took away from it, what you learned, what you learned about leadership, what you learned about yourself? I will talk about those experiences, and it's not something I, I like to do. I don't like to go around telling war stories. But there's a healthy disrespect, I think, among veterans who've really been on the front lines, who've fought in the infantry as I did, for telling, for people who tell war stories. So I'll talk about why I joined the Marines and why I served in the middle of this divisive war, why I continued going back, and, and about what it taught me about 
this country, about how I saw some of the best of America in the worst of circumstances in Iraq, and, and it's why I have so much faith in our future. I'm proud to talk about that, but you'll never hear me talking about my medals or anything like that. Well, what did you learn about yourself? Because experiences in extremity, and there's nothing like war in that sense, often reveals things about yourself that you didn't know before. Sometimes things that are good, sometimes things that aren't um, as good. So can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think as you can tell, I don't like talking about myself. I like talking about the Marines I served with. And um, it's an amazing experience to watch fellow Americans be willing to risk their lives for everything, for you. You know, when I would ask young Americans to, to do something that was important for the mission, but could end their lives. And they believe in this country so much, and they even trusted me enough to, to do that. One of the things I learned is that trust is so important. You know, when you show up for Marine training, you quickly learn that you can drop out of a run, and they'll let you try the next day. You can fail a test and they'll let you retake the test. But if you lie about anything, you're gone that afternoon. That's how important trust is. And we have a commander in chief you cannot trust. You can't trust a single thing that Donald Trump says. That's why we have to take him on on this. That's why we have to challenge him as commander in chief, not just as, as president. I mean, he's going to get out there and say we've got a great economy. Of course, it's great for many people, but not for all. Uh, he's going to tell you that he's solved the immigration crisis. Of course, he hasn't done that. But he's got a lot of things that he's going to run on. I want to challenge him on what it means to be a patriotic American. It's a really, just, let me just follow up on one thing, which is it's, it's a really interesting point uh, about trust and character. So your argument is, is that his biggest weakness is national security. That's where you're strong. National security is not, there's not a lot of energy in the Democratic Party on this issue of national security right now. Even Joe Biden isn't really talking about it very much. He ran in 2008, I think, on dividing Iraq into three separate uh, entities. Well, it was a terrible um, idea. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why he's not talking about it. But how are you going to make that argument that, that national security um, is, in a way, the most important argument? When I listen to voters all over this country, Democrats say the most important thing is beating Donald Trump. And that's why we've got to be willing to take him on where he's weakest. So it's not just about national security being important. It's about, it's about beating this guy because we have all sorts of great ideas that we want to pursue. I want to make sure every American has affordable health care. I want to make sure that we get guns out of school. And I say that with the credibility of someone who's used guns. I want to make sure that Americans are prepared for the economy of the future because a lot of the old jobs are just not coming back. But we've got to win the green tech revolution from China. But if we want to do all these things... We've got to beat Trump first, and we ought to be able to challenge him but where he's weak. Before you can beat Trump, you've got to beat, what, 21, 21 other, other Democrats. Democrats who are running for president. And other than the fact that you've used guns, and most of those, except maybe Mayor Pete has also used guns, but other than that, everything else you've said is pretty much what every Democratic candidate would say. So how do you break through in a field this crowded? How do you well, distinguish all, just to, yourself? Just to be clear, I am literally else. the only one who's running on national security and talking about running his job as, right. as commander in chief. Right. So 
if if Americans care about where Trump is weak and beating him, as 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 yeah. clearly they do, right. uh, then then that matters. And national security affects us not just abroad. You know, it's not just about the fact that that Trump has uh, gotten Iran to threaten to withdraw from the nuclear deal and start making nuclear weapons. Uh, nor his buddy in North Korea is shooting off uh, missiles just this past week. Uh, the administration has had a failed coup in, in Venezuela. It's also about, about how those issues affect us here at home. You know, Trump has devoted more money to building the southern border wall than to defending our entire country from cyber attacks from Russia and China. Mm-hmm. China is stealing our jobs, our ideas from businesses, our military secrets every single day through the Internet. And the point is this guy is not keeping our country safe. So I'll, I'm happy to look. Right. I, right. I have Let's a talk about some national security issues. Sure. You want to pull U.S. troops out of Afghanistan? Yes, I do, but I don't want to do it the way we did in Iraq, which was so quick we had to send them back a year so later. So you want to so what I want to do, pull U.S. What troops I want to out do is clarify the mission. Our mission in well, Afghanistan— we've been trying to clarify the mission for the last 17 well, years and haven't succeeded. Yes. <laughs> we need to make the mission in Afghanistan a counterterror mission, period, because we can't have it be a, a breeding ground for more terrorists. So and frankly, practical it is matter, today. what does that mean? So that means you have a small force— of American troops, mostly special forces, that are dedicated, uh, probably less than a thousand, fewer than a thousand, Mm -hmm. that are dedicated to counter-terror missions only. How's this different from the old Biden plan? That's what he wanted. Which Biden plan was? Which Biden plan was? 2009. That's what he was proposing when Obama decided to send more troops. Yeah. I I don't remember the details of that particular plan. Uh, I've I've agreed with some things the vice president has proposed and, and others I've disagreed with. I will say, I do think it's time for the generation that fought in Iraq and Afghanistan to replace the generation that that sent us there. And from that perspective of being on the ground, on the front lines in these wars, I can tell you that uh, we've had a lot of mission creep in Afghanistan. And and there are a lot of things that we're trying to do there that are probably unrealistic. So what I don't want to do— So no nation building in in Afghanistan, no trying to build up the government and fight corruption and— We'll support the government diplomatically. Right. But we're not going to have American troops do nation building on the ground. And that's exactly the kind of mission clarity— that we need. How you about know, Syria? One of the, that's How about Syria? Thing. Do you want to pull U.S. troops out of Syria? Just quickly, you know, that's another thing you learn when you're on the ground is how important the mission is. You know, understanding what you need to do to accomplish the mission and to, and to go home. There's no one who wants to pull the troops out more than I do because I've spent four tours on the ground there. But I want to make sure they can come home for good. They know what they need to do to come home for good and don't have to turn around and go back. So what does that mean in Syria? Syria is one of the hardest problems we face because there's no plan whatsoever for what happens after we're done fighting. I think the only realistic plan right now is to carve out a small section of the country for our allies, the people who we fought and trained and have put their lives in our trust to keep them safe and to secure that part of the country and then go home. I think in Iraq, We've got to actually really reinforce the diplomatic effort because Iraqi security forces are now at the stage where they can take control of their own country and they don't need our further training and assistance. In fact, I thought it was a mistake for President Obama to focus on training when it was really the Iraqi government that was falling apart. And that's why ISIS was able to so successfully take over parts of the country. But we do need more support for the Iraqi government. I'm one of those uh, veterans uh, like General Mattis who believes fervently that we need to give more funding to the State Department, that we need to lead with diplomacy everywhere 
we go. General Mattis famously said that if you cut the State Department funding, you're going to have to buy me more ammunition. Right. He's right. He was actually my division commander uh, back really? in the, Yes, he was my division mm-hmm. commander. You mentioned a failed coup in Venezuela that the administration backed. Do you want to step up the pressure on the Maduro regime, or do you think we should pull back? Oh, we absolutely should step up the pressure. By doing uh, but what? we shouldn't be doing what the administration did, <laughs> willy-nilly reckless foreign policy right. by tweet with no idea where it leads. How do we step so, up the pressure? Look, we've got to be more targeted with our economic sanctions uh, to more directly target the regime uh, while showing that we support the Venezuelan people. We've got to work with our allies in the region. I mean, this is something that the Trump administration never does, is actually get our allies in the region, right in our backyard, clearly on our side with this. Most and of we've them got are, to, actually. Yes, but there's no organizational effort. I mean, sure, they're, they're on our side in principle, but mm-hmm. what are they doing with us? You know, where's, mm-hmm. the, where's the cooperation? Where's the coalition? And one of the things I talk about that's so important as we think about a new generation of leadership in national security is we've got to strengthen our alliances not tear them apart like the Trump administration has done. Our division motto when I served under General, General Mattis was no better friend, no worse, and no worse enemy than a United States Marine. That should be the motto for the United States of America. No better friend than America. We're with you if you're our ally, but also no worse enemy. I mean, Trump does the exact opposite. He cozies up to our enemies, right. Putin, so speaking Kim Jong-un. Of that, speaking of that, yeah. uh, the Mueller report, demonstrated seems pretty conclusively that uh, in the language of the report that Russia's talked about Russia's what was it, sweeping and systematic, systematic attack and sweeping, on, yeah. on our democracy. <clears throat> um, we have a president who famously, in many people's views, has cozied up to Putin and the Russians. What would your Russia policy be? We've got to stand up to Russia. How they so? attacked our democracy. We've got to prevent that from happening again. That means actually investing a serious amount of money in cyber defense. That's the kind of next generation investment we should be making to keep our so that's country that's a long-term safe. strategy. No, no, which, it's not, well, but, it is a long-term strategy, but it's also an immediate response um, to the fact that they not only interfered in our 2016 elections, but I guarantee you they will be, or they probably already are, interfering in this election. They're probably listening to us right now talk about this. I mean, that's how involved we've allowed a Russia to be. And so we've got to, so one thing we have to do in, in, in terms of alliances is we've got to mar- modernize NATO. Now, Putin is walking all over NATO because Trump is tearing it apart, disparaging it every chance he gets. And NATO was designed in 1949 to prevent Soviet tanks from invading Western Europe. Well, they're invading through the internet right now. And they're being very effective at attacking not only us, but all our Eastern European allies. And NATO doesn't know how to respond. Uh, similarly, in the, in the Pacific, I think we should organize our allies. I've called for a Pacific version of, of NATO to help contain China and North Korea. The president right now is in trade negotiations uh, where he says, you know, what he's trying to get is a deal for um, China to stop, uh, stop hacking us, right? Listen, this is how their economy works. They're not going to agree to that. Or even if they do, they're not going to follow through. I have a bill in Congress right now to sanction and punish Chinese producers of fentanyl because it's infecting our streets, uh, mm-hmm. opioids, all right? But we already have a deal with China that we will stop these shipments. You know how many shipments China stopped? We've stopped about 1,100. They've stopped four, okay? Mm-hmm. They're not interested in stopping these shipments because it's good for their economy and it's bad for America. So how do you get their attention? So my point is that we don't count on some trade deal negotiated by Trump this amazing deal maker. I mean, give me a break. We actually have to strengthen our cybersecurity. He's got more money devoted to this building this wall 
on the southern border than in cybersecurity for the whole country. You've talked about a cyber wall. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Explain what a cyber wall is. Well, what it means is that the federal government, I mean, we know, we know what we need to do. It's highly technical and all this to, yeah. to protect ourselves from, from hacking, but we don't invest any money in it. We don't spend any resources in doing that. I mean, you know, China had this debate about building a, a big wall, and they had it like three centuries ago. <laughs> all right? Like, right. They're, they're investing in artificial intelligence, okay? They're investing in cyber technology. They've said they're going to be the world leader in artificial intelligence by 2030. You know what we've said in response? Crickets. Nothing. That's not only a national security threat, it's an economic threat. It's a great example of how national security affects economic security of Americans right here at home. If you're working in, a, in a, just a good middle-class job in America, you're working at a, at a company that's developed a new technology, you're, you're manufacturing some product, you better be worried that China is going to steal those plants so and start doing it themselves. So you've talked a lot about cyber defense, but we also have a, an offensive cyber capability. That's a very good point, yes. How, how do you think about when is it legitimate to use that? And what should the rules of the road be? We should think about it as a deterrent. You know, we should meet China's uh, cyber attacks by being willing to use it ourselves. Now, carefully, uh, sparingly, there is an example that just came out last week where China actually was able to, you know, they're very sophisticated. They were actually able to steal some of our offensive technology and some of our code uh, when we conducted a cyber attack against them. So we've got to, we're obviously not as good as we need to be at this, and that's why we need to enforce, invest more, uh, more resources in it. But we should be meeting these attacks with our, with our own as a deterrent. I mean, that's just sort of a basic of national security. It's not what this administration is doing. Should Trump be impeached? We should certainly have the debate. Well, and I called, well, I mean, this is important. This mm-hmm. is important stuff. I mean, this is, a, this is verging on a constitutional crisis, what's going on right now. And we should have that debate. I called for it last year. I voted for it last year because Congress does two things. To begin impeachment proceedings correct, in the House Judiciary Committee. That's correct. Right. Because what that means is that you're going to have this debate before Congress, before the American people. And don't tell me there's not enough to debate. I mean, over 30 Trump associates have been right. indicted by so, the Mueller but report. But we know a lot right now. We've got the Mueller report. No, we don't than, have the Mueller Well, we report. have more than 90% of it. And I don't think well, what you 10% think, do you think they're leaving well, out? Well, do you think no, that there leaving. was something <laughs> in that 10% that Robert Mueller saw and chose to leave out of his report and would have changed his conclusions or changed your conclusions after you see it? That seems highly unlikely. So you know where Mueller came Wait, down. Don't you, you saw the, the bulk of his evidence. To, don't you think the American people ought to hear the answer to that right, question but, from Robert What more do you need to know or want to know before you can say something beyond we should have a debate? Either yay or nay, he should be impeached. What more do you need to know? This is the point of this process. The point of the process is that you have the opportunity to have discoveries, to get more facts out there before the Congress and before the American people. But what facts are you looking for? What is your big unanswered question? The single biggest question, the unmistakable conclusion of the Mueller report, is that Vladimir Putin wanted Trump elected president. Right. Every but American known should know that. that. Since no, 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 but why? Intelligence community. Can you tell me why? Why? Well, for one thing, he held a grudge against Hillary Clinton and thought that she interfered in, You're speculating. in his. Well, but we also, know this that. Is a, this, yeah. is a, this is a well, fundamental issue of national right. I don't care if you're the biggest Trump supporter or the biggest Trump hater. You should know why the only country on earth that could literally wipe out every American life in 20 minutes right. wanted this guy elected well, president. Well, you think you can get not, that answer in the not, next couple of months when Mueller couldn't get it in two years? We should absolutely try. That's our duty. That's our constitutional right. duty right. In, the, in the United States Congress to act as a check on the executive. And don't think we can't do a 
doesn't mean we can't move the country forward as well and pass good legislation. But this is, this is our duty. I mean, a lot of the times the, peop- the argument that people make for not proceeding with impeachment proceedings, and I'm, by, mm-hmm. I'm not calling for the vote. You know, Congress does two things. We debate yeah. things and we vote on them. I don't think it's time for the vote yet. But one of the reasons is, oh, well, Seth, you know, people politically, this is not a good move. Look, mm-hmm. this is way more important than politics, folks. You know, how about just doing the right thing by the Constitution that we swore an oath to protect and defend? But look, the uh, Mueller report had some really damning evidence about the president's attempts to obstruct the investigation. You've got that. You've got a lot of the information about the contacts. You've We've seen the stonewalling that the administration is doing to all congressional oversight. I'm just sort of, I just want to like what what more are you looking for to make up your mind as to whether the president should be impeached or not this is just the right thing to do there's a we don't know all the evidence that's out there because we haven't even gotten i mean these subpoenas have been denied but it, implicit I mean, these subpoena- in mike's question is that based on what we know now you would not vote to impeach donald trump that's that not fair? what i said no that's not what i said i said that the responsible decision to make is to have the information before we vote. So, and, and as a and as a member of Congress, that's that's just that's so you, the response. You don't have enough information right now to say the president should be impeached. I just, I mean, look, there seems to be an awful lot of information that he should be. But the right thing to do here, I mean, I get the fact that you're looking for a political answer, but the right thing to do is to have this debate transparently before the American people, and then make a decision. We, we just went through a Republican Congress where where they tried to repeal Obamacare without a replacement. Right. Where they voted for a tax bill without having a single debate in the Congress about it. Right. That's wrong. Right. That's wrong. I mean, sure, I knew a lot about the tax bill, but we should have had that debate. Right. And that's, that's our So regardless of whether it would actually lead to his removal from office, given the fact that the Senate is still firmly in Republican hands right. and no Republican senators have indicated right. the slightest inclination to uh, vote to remove Donald Trump, um, is it worth going through a wrenching impeachment process in the House knowing that what the outcome is almost certainly going to be in the Senate? It is because, again, it's the right thing to do. And you know, too often in today's world, we just talk about what is politically advantageous for one side or the other. Uh, I didn't swear an oath to protect and defend my political party. I swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. The same oath I swore as a Marine, by the way. One of you're from Massachusetts. Uh, there's uh, already um, a Massachusetts senator, uh, Elizabeth Warren, I- who's running for president. Uh, where do you disagree with her? You know, I'm not. I'm not here to. To bash Elizabeth Warren, she's a, uh, not to a bash her, but you want to distinguish yourself from the other candidates in the race. So well, I'm I'll starting tell you a place with her. where I where I disagree with a lot of candidates in this race, and that's on health care. It's an incredibly important issue to American voters. I'm the only candidate in this race who actually gets single payer health care. Because, the veterans, yeah, because uh, I made a commitment to continue going to the VA even as a member of Congress. So that's that's where I go for my care, and I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good. The VA actually negotiates drug prices, so they do a much better job than Medicare of of keeping prescription prices low. But I've also had surgery at the VA where they sent me home with the wrong medications. And we've all heard the stories of fellow veterans literally dying on VA waiting lists or committing suicide in VA waiting rooms because they can't see a mental health care professional. So as the only person who knows firsthand what single-payer health care is really all about, I think we should actually have some competition in the system. So I don't support forcing everybody 
onto a government health care plan designed so in 1963. So you're against Medicare for all. I think we should have a public option, which means right. that Medicare, or, or better, a much more modern version of Medicare, right. competes against the private health care plans that people... You can opt in, but but you're not going to be forced off of your private plan if you don't like it. I mean, look, take another government monopoly like the United States Postal Service. Does anyone actually think it's a bad thing that FedEx and UPS compete with the Postal Service? I mean, if we have choices in delivering packages, we should have choices in delivering health care. It will bring down, that competition will bring down premiums, bring down prescription drug prices, because all sides will have to compete. Yeah, if yeah. Medicare actually competed with the VA, maybe they'd start negotiating drug prices. There's actually a lot of polling that suggests that, that your view is much more popular than Medicare for all out there. So why aren't you making that the central pitch? Well, actually, I talk about it a lot. I mean, we you know we've talked a lot about foreign policy to get here, but um, but I, I I talk about this 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 all the time. But you know, I think I think when you get in a race like this, people people got to know who you are, you know, and, and and why you're here, and I simply wouldn't be here if not for my experience in the Marines. I didn't grow up interested in politics. I didn't study it in school. You know, I have a. I have a physics degree from Harvard, as I like to say. Everyone in life who <laughs> sees my resume and not my transcript makes me sound really smart. You know? um, where, um, where do you disagree with Joe Biden? Look, I think Joe Biden has been an amazing public servant. He's a mentor and a friend. But I do think that it's time for a new generation to lead in American politics because we have a new generation of challenges. And what I'm talking about is how to take the country forward. I'm not talking about going back to the old NATO. I'm talking about building a NATO for the future. I'm not talking about going back to the old health care plan. I'm talking about building a health care plan uh, that's firmly focused on the future. I'm not talking about bringing back the old manufacturing jobs because I'm, I'm sorry, a lot of them aren't coming back. But I am talking about a true education revolution in this country, just like we had to meet the industrial revolution, that can give Americans the skills they need to get jobs in the new economy. I'm firmly focused on the future, and I think it's time for a new generation of leadership in American politics. So you, That's what I spent the yeah. last two years doing, by the way, too. I mean, I, I traveled all over this country helping win back the House. And of the 40 seats that we flipped to take back the House, 21 of them uh, were endorsed and supported by my Serve America organization. So you made that argument about generational change in the last election, and you called for uh – Nancy Pelosi for a change in Democratic leadership. And for well, Nancy the top Pelosi three. to stop, top three, to, including Nancy Pelosi, to stop, step yeah, aside. Boyer now the Democrats well. take back the House. She was reelected as Speaker. Um, and, um, you know, she's like this iconic uh, <laughs> well, Democrat right now. What, what, what are your relations with Nancy <laughs> yeah, Pelosi right now? Look, we, How do you think she's doing? I, I think she's doing great at taking on Trump. Uh, I think she's doing doing great at that. But because we had that Democratic debate, which of all parties the Democratic Party ought to have. I mean, you don't get reappointed speaker, you get reelected. First of all, we we made a deal on term limits that will give this new generation of leaders that I worked so hard to get elected in the past election a voice in the future of our politics. Uh, because of that debate, we got the voting rights subcommittee, the climate change subcommittee, and we gave her the votes that she needed to become speaker without forcing so many of the freshmen who promised to vote against her to change their votes, to change that promise. So they actually have a chance of getting reelected. So so at the end of the day, because we had that debate, I think it's good for the party. It makes us a stronger party. It makes us a stronger country. And by the way, my willingness to challenge the establishment, I mean, <laughs> this is what we need. I mean, I, I haven't met a single American voter yet who said, God, Seth, I just really wish you'd get in line with the establishment a little bit more. They're just really knocking it out of the park there in Washington. <laughs> so you're, you're viewed as a uh, somewhat more moderate than 
some of the other people who are in this race. And I wonder what you think of this kind of new firebrand class of uh, freshman uh, Democrats, AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib. Are you worried about the perception that the party is moving uh, too far to the left? First of all, the, the way I think most people see me is as an independent thinker who's not just going to do what the party says. So if you look at my record on guns, for example, or climate change, I'm very progressive. I'm way yeah, out there. I'm one supporter of, of the Green New Deal? I was one of the first people to yeah. sign on to it as a framework. I'm, I'm really, you know, I've been talking about my own view right. on what it should, what it should contain. But uh, as one of the only members of Congress with a degree in science, yes, I absolutely believe we should address climate change. And I've been very, very strong on guns. On the other hand, uh, I'm proud to say I'm a capitalist. I believe in the American economic system, and I don't think we're a socialist country. But if we're going to be the majority That'll party- That'll be interesting when you get on the debate stage with um, <laughs> Bernie Sanders and some of the other progressives well, in this race. I look race. forward to it. Right. I look forward to it. But, but to answer your question, you know, if we're going to be the majority party, we've, we've got to represent the majority of Americans. And I think that the new ideas that are coming out of this, of this debate and this new freshman class are really are helpful for the party and for the country. But we also got to make sure that we don't abandon the Democrats yeah. who actually- won these tough seats. I mean, let's let's not forget that it was the Democrats running in tough districts, many of whom promised to vote against Pelosi, yeah. for example, who actually won the seats we needed to win to win the majority. Are you at all concerned that the, that the rhetoric and the tone in Congress among Democrats these days and the ones who are getting all the ear time, that that's a problem in terms of the perception of the party and, and uh, the, the, you know, uh, where Democrats, the larger Democratic class are? I don't have a problem with them getting airtime. I just want to make sure that these amazing veterans who won these tough seats, who actually won the majority for us, that they get airtime as well. So uh, people, I got two final questions for you. Sure. Uh, People like (laughs) to get to know the people who are running for president. So my two final questions are, what book has made a big influence in your life and what public figure has most inspired you? Wow. These are not very personal questions, actually, in a lot of ways. I thought you were going to ask about, you know, my, my family, my amazing, my amazing wife who just, we just celebrated her first Mother's Day yeah, ever, and right, I, my seven-month-old daughter. I mean, that was actually, you know, that was the hardest part about signing up for this, is the fact that I've got a seven-month-old at home, and, and I'd never been a father before, and I didn't know what that was all about. That's why I didn't get into the race until a few weeks ago, and, and, it's literally hard every single day. I mean, I left her this morning to come right. down here for this interview. It is hard every single day that I'm away from her. But at the end of the day, I'm running because I want her to grow up in a better country, in a better world. And I want her to know that her dad did everything he could to serve this country. A book that has made a big influence on you and a public figure who has inspired you. You know, look, this is more casual, but a book that I really enjoy that's controversial and I think in, a, in, a, in actually a good way because it, because it inspires a debate we need to have in America is Huck Finn. And uh, some people don't like it because it um, because there are a lot of issues of racial inequality that come out mm-hmm. through reading that book. But we need to have that discussion. It's a hard discussion. Mm-hmm. We need to have it as Americans. And look, I mean, a public figure that inspires me, I'll go with uh, with one of our home state senators, John F. Kennedy. Well, I was going to say your rhetorical reference to a new generation that's right out of the JFK uh, language. He was a veteran who stepped up to serve in a time when we needed to bring America together. And and he wasn't a perfect president, but he did inspire Americans to believe in this country, to believe in this country so much that they actually wanted to serve it. And that's why I'm here. I believe in this country. I want to serve it. I want other Americans to believe in it, too. We've never been a perfect country. 
there are a lot of problems that we haven't solved. Back, back in Kennedy's time, poor and middle-class people couldn't get health care. Well, a lot of poor middle-class people can't get health care today, fellow Americans. Back in Kennedy's time, uh, schools were segregated by race. Well, we still have schools that are segregated not only by class, but effectively by race as well. But at our best, we're not a country that thinks we've figured it all out. We're a country that believes that we might. And I know that when my sister goes to teach in a public school in Massachusetts every single day, she doesn't go there because she thinks it's a perfect school. And I've heard the story, so I know she doesn't go there because she thinks they're (laughs) perfect kids. She goes there to make it better, to make those kids better, to help them, to make our country stronger. That's the spirit that we need to find again in America. And uh, that's why I'm in this race. Congressman, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery, and good luck out there. Thank you very much. Listen, if you like anything I said, go to my website, SethMolton.com, and throw in $5, $10, or even just a dollar to help me get on the debate stage. I'd appreciate it. (laughs) Okay. Thanks. Thank you. We are now joined by Charlie Learson author and former Newsweek writer, whose piece we published uh, recently about what it was like to be Donald Trump's ghostwriter while Donald Trump was losing a massive amount of money in the late 80s and early 90s. He lost $1.7 billion uh, during that period, according to a recent report in the New York Times. And you were there witnessing it while it was happening. So first of all, welcome to Skullduggery, Charlie. Great to be here with you. Tell us how you came to be Donald Trump's ghostwriter for a book, I should say, called Surviving at the Top. Yeah, well, I was working at Newsweek, as you just said, and and I had just finished ghostwriting a book with Chuck Yeager, the guy who broke the sound barrier. And that was a sequel, too. He had a book that came out that was a huge bestseller and uh, his life story. And I finished that project, and I guess I had a little bit of a reputation as someone who could handle an ornery character or and also someone who could maybe do a sequel and squeeze the the lemon a little bit more, even after the lemon had been pretty thoroughly squeezed. And and so that was the case with Trump. He, He had done the art of the deal with Tony Schwartz, and Tony Schwartz did... In the Ghostwriting Hall of Fame, Tony Schwartz has the Babe Ruth spot in there. And he'd done such a great job. But I I guess, I don't really remember this part of it, but I think Tony got another gig because of that, his great job. And he was off doing that. So there was a vacuum here. So they sent me up to talk to to Trump. And it was supposed to be in Trump Tower in his office. And it was supposed to be just a get to know you, let's see what our chemistry is like deal. But I think we hit it off right away because we're two like bridge and tunnel guys, as we say in New York. You know, he was from Queens and I was from the Bronx. And, you know, we started talking turkey. We started talking money. But the funny thing was he started negotiating with me and he did it by writing down on a piece of paper a number and then turning it down and sliding it across the desk to me. And... I gathered that I was supposed to look at it and cross it out and write another number. And so even though it was just the two this of us. This is like how much he was going to pay you to yes, be his ghostwriter? Right, yeah. Or how much Random House actually was going to pay me. Because I actually did get paid in the end. But if, if I was working for him, God knows what might have happened. So we did this several times back and forth, just the two of us in the office. And then sitting, I had like my knees were almost touching his desk. I was that close to him. And it reminded me, I, I thought I had a, you know, brought back a little memory. I had bought a used car once and the same, the salesman had 
to add a little layer of mystery or something to the process had done the same thing with me and passed back and forth the piece of paper. We were sliding it face down. And then I realized that's how, and anyway, we came up with a number and it was a, a rather good number for me. I had three young kids, college bound eventually at that time. And that's how we had the deal. So you saw the art of the deal playing out right in front of you. It didn't, right. sound, didn't sound like he was uh, that tough a negotiator. He wasn't, and he <laughs> paid me an awful lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so this piece just kind of rocketed around the internet. People just loved it. And we were always taught at Newsweek that you're always looking for the telling detail. You know, that little detail that is really revealing. And for me, the telling detail in that piece was the swatches. Donald Trump's fascination with swatches. So talk about that, and then tell us what you think that revealed about Donald Trump then and Donald Trump today. Well, sure. I mean, the process that I just described about negotiating was the first tip that something was weird here because I had my impression of him from the art of the deal, so I had to get all that changed. So I, then I started to notice that most of his day sometimes was taken up feeling these fabric swatches and paging through these books of fabric swatches, you know, velour and broad loom and whatever was going on. He owned three hotels in Atlantic City, and then he had just bought the plaza. He owned a boat and he owned an airline, the Trump shuttle, what's called, had been the Eastern Airline shuttle. So it, it made sense. You need carpets, you need drapes in these places. But on the other hand, you usually would sort of, you know, delegate that to someone else. But then I realized that I came to realize over the course of time, that he didn't really know how to run the businesses and had no interest in them, no curiosity about learning. He just, every once in a while, he'd get a v very bad numbers about how things were going, and he would be angry or a little nauseous. But mostly, he didn't know and didn't care. And I think that's analogous to what's going on now in the government. There's a large parts of being a president that he doesn't know about and doesn't care to learn about. It is a little reminiscent, uh, Isakoff, of like we, the stories you, you hear about like when he's getting his uh, PDB, his national security briefings, <laughs> and like what he's actually doing. He's kind of bored. He wants or he wants to see it on paper with animation or whatever. But also, you know, what does he do now? He obviously spends an awful lot of the day tweeting, which doesn't seem to be a primary part the of core like, constitutional duty <laughs> of, of the, the office. chief executive. Right. Yeah. 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 So what was it like working with him? Just give us a, a sense of how you managed to ghostwrite this book with him. How did the process work? Well, it wasn't very exciting, I got to tell you that, because like I'd come in, I'd walk over from Newsweek. Newsweek was on 444 Madison Avenue, and I'd walk over to Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue. And you know how it was at Newsweek, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, there's often not a lot for a writer to do. So I had a lot of flexible time, let's say. So I'd go there, and Matthew Calamari, his famous bodyguard, would uh, Who bring came me upstairs. Up in, uh the Michael Cohen hearing, right? Matthew Calamari. Right, was a yeah. Reference, yeah. yeah. At that point, he was he wore a uniform and was like a chauffeur, but he was also a security guard. He'd give me a big high and bring me upstairs, and I'd plop down in, in Trump's office. And again, you've heard this about as, as being president. He shows up and then sees how the day goes. You know, he has a lot of executive time, a lot of open space in his schedule now and then. So nothing would happen for long stretches. We'd sit there, we'd talk about the Yankees, or he'd tell me, he'd come in sometimes with a story that he wanted to get in the book. He'd been thinking of it overnight. And so often it was like a cockamamie story. He said, one time he said to me, Charles, he says, put this in the book. The other day I was walking down the street and I saw a beautiful woman completely naked. And I said, <laughs> 
And it was, it was supposed to be like only in New York that was supposed to be, you know, like one of those kind of stories. And so I, I said, Donald, first of all, you don't walk down the street. You know, he doesn't go six inches without being in a limo. And, and, and second of all, you, you didn't see a beautiful woman. So he's in, let's say she had a mink coat on, he said, but naked underneath, you know. So I saw, I guess, there the construction of a Trump lie you know right right before my eyes and then i would pretend to okay you know i'd write that down you know other days he'd come down with a plan he said charles instead of you changing everything i say or coming up with things that i never said in the first place which turned out to be the only way to go in, with the book but he'd say just write down whatever i'd say so i remember that time we were talking about how he bought the eastern airline shuttle and turned it into the trump shuttle so i just became a, a secretary and i wrote down everything he said and then the next session i showed it to him and every other paragraph practically began with lo and behold from out of the blue you know <laughs> so i i sort of had those underlined and i showed him that you know it might be better to be uh, have a little bit to use my uh, abilities such as they were to help him so that's it he'd have these plans he'd talk about that he'd show me one time he said to me basically just imagine a day with a lot of empty space and then we'd be sitting there sometimes a celebrity would wander through bob hope came in one time and chit chatted with him why i you know i don't know you know dennis connor the guy from the uh, america's cup yacht races came by you know trump didn't know anything about yacht racing or his yacht was more like an ocean liner and so that that, that was how the day went so what was the point of the book the point of the book was i guess to the market demanded another book after the art of the deal and uh it was such as a bestseller and if, if you put yourself back in the time it wasn't a political book it was a book that for dads and grads it was one of those kind of books that uh people gave uh, to someone they loved you know no one was snickering at that book at the time and it was such a big bestseller that there had to be a sequel and uh it was up to those who were involved so what was the conceit the conceit yeah. was just deal to deal to deal he you know there was a chapter about the plaza hotel there was a chapter about the trump shuttle there was a chapter about the yacht i don't even remember when we you guys called me to do this and do the story i didn't own a copy of the book that i co-wrote with him you, you say it wasn't a political book but in that period did he talk politics a little bit and he was, somebody reminded me, on the side, we never actually got into this, but he, this was during the time of the Central Park Five ad that he took out, demanding that those guys be prosecuted or, and they were innocent. So there was a seed of evil in him that was starting to sprout, I think. But what I saw mostly, and I don't mean to say this to balance him out or anything, but it was like a goofy guy from Queens, you know, and he didn't really talk politics much. Somebody, if somebody got in trouble with some kind of sex scandal, he would say, oh, that's a shame because, you know, why we lose a good man, you know, if what difference does it make? We should be more like France. I remember that I was impressed by that, that he knew that the French were perhaps more tolerant of uh, so sex more of scandals. A, of a libertine. Yeah, but, you know, he didn't really have a consistent philosophy about politics and if anything he drifted sort of to the left slightly you know maybe a lot of people have noted what they perceive as a intellectual deterioration in trump from mm -hmm. then when he could speak in complete sentences that are coherent right. were coherent that seemed to make sense to a lot of the gibberish you hear now do you see that? 
I definitely do see it. And I've noticed it a lot. And I notice it even in clips going back two or three years that he was better. He was, of course, no more informed about anything. I once went with him with a, on a trip to Brazil because he, uh, he hated to go because he hated to leave his office. But he was schmoozing a big gambler down there. And we went down there and he got, he stood up at a luncheon and he said, first of all, I'd like to compliment you people on the way you speak Spanish. He said this was his opening gambit, which, you know, which on several levels, like man of the world, right? Yeah, it, right. It's not the Spanish club in high school that you're, con- you know, it's, it's, he's tr- he thinks that's their native language, you know, and he's complimenting people on the way they speak their, their natural native language. And then he got the language wrong, of course. And then someone pulled on his sleeve and whispered in his ear, you know, it must have said it's Portuguese, Donald, you know. And he stood up and he said, oh, Portuguese is just kind of a hip swing in Spanish, right? Right? You know, and the cringing, he was already causing cringing even then, you know. Yeah. Um, Did you like him? I liked it. We got along. Yeah, I, I liked him, you know, but I didn't seek out his company exactly. Sometimes he would invite me to something and I'd come up with an excuse. I didn't think he was evil and I didn't, I didn't think he was awful. And now I think he's evil and awful. So uh, I guess I liked him better then, yeah. Was it weird, surreal? How would you describe like how you saw him? It was weird having this other vision of the, the other world was still viewing the, he was the guy from the art of the deal to the rest of the world, even to smart people. You know, that's all, that's all they had. He looked relatively normal. He spoke relatively normal. His hair did not look like the Sydney Opera House yet, you know. But meanwhile, I was seeing this guy who was also very lonely. One time he said to me at the end of a long day of just sitting around doing very little, both of us, he said, you want to go to the Yankee game? And I, I just, on the spur of the moment, I, I begged off, not because I hated him or I thought, you know, it was going to be great seats and all, but I just went home. I lived on the Upper West Side, and I wound up turning on the Yankee game that night. And at one point, they say, hey, look who's here. And the camera pans down, and there's Donald Trump with Matthew Calamari, his bodyguard, <clears throat> who was going to be there anyway, <clears throat> and no one else. <clears throat> you know, he couldn't get Donald Trump, even at the height of his, you know, 1980, late 80s fame, couldn't get anyone to go to the Yankee game with him. And I think that was, a, that was the story of his life. He really had no, no friends, and, and people in the, in the real estate business hated him. So, that, you know, so he's, he had some enemies and no friends. One thing I wonder about him is he spent so much time cultivating his image as the great businessman. And Did he have a, an imposter syndrome at all? I mean, was he worried that he was going to be found out or... Was he not self-aware enough to have an imposter syndrome? Psychologically, how did he balance the image and the press and the reality of sitting around feeling swatches? Yeah, I, I've wondered about that myself. I, I think the secret is that, as I said in the piece that I did for you guys, that his greatest talent for it was for compartmentalizing. So he, he quickly put things in a box and, and put them in a way. I don't think he ever felt like an imposter, and it's hard to tell what he feels like. You just, the thing I try to con- tell people, you never met a man like this, he's unique. He's, he's, he's so profoundly dumb, and, and when he has an instinct that's so profoundly off, I'd never met anyone else like him. You know, I've met, I've seen, and you know, right-wing extremists and all that. It's not exactly that, it's something else. It's the profound dumbness is at, at the center of and it. Yet- you know, there is a 
political genius there. I mean, a guy who marched through the Republican primary, got the nomination, can still go out and give speeches and get these audiences all crazed up. He could speak for endlessly. He has a genius for tagging people, for finding the vulnerability of his foes. I mean, there is a duality there. I don't know if it's a duality. I don't. And I don't think it's a genius. I think it's more like the stop clock being right twice a day syndrome. You know, he he's occasionally gets it right. He and with no, his. But I mean, look. You know, he defeated foe after foe in those Republican primaries, shot them down, destroyed them, marched to the nomination that nobody thought he had any chance of getting, and then wins the election. So there's something there that is beyond a complete dumbo. I don't agree. I think he you just know. did one thing correctly, and that's which is he, what? Which is he, he tapped into racism. That's the one thing he did that has worked for them and that explains everything else that's, that's happening including his march to the Republican nomination and march to the White House, it, that he tapped into racism is the, is the one thing he's done that's worked and has been good for him. And all of his other supposed genius can be explained from that, I think. Do you think he's a racist? Oh, yeah. Did you see that while you worked? No, I didn't see it. We didn't, I didn't see any examples of that, although this was a time when he and his father were you know, denying housing to uh, minority people, and, and he was taking out the Central Park Five ad, I didn't see it, but that's not a defense of him. It's just that we never, we never got two white guys sitting around. We never got on that subject. So I want to go back to um, you know this period. The New York Times wrote about when he was losing all this money and how he dealt with that because he tells a story about seeing a homeless man on the street and he says something like, "I'm worse off than that homeless man because he's not worth anything, and I'm worse, I'm worth less than anything." What did you make of that story? Well, I was struck by it at the time, you know, and then I put it in, uh, as I say, in, in, in our piece that I put it in the in the introduction to the, we were hastily making revisions, so I thought it w- might work as, a, you know, an admission of him getting s- sobered up by what was happening to him a little bit and make things current, but he very much disliked it when he saw it, and it, it was a rare moment when I actually was reminded that occasionally he would dip into his own book and read a few pages of it because he called me at home and it was a Sunday night, I remember, and I picked up the phone and he said, this is Donald Trump. And he was like giving me his tough guy, I'm really angry voice, which would make people, including his wife at that time, quake and shake. I saw that dynamic going on when he, when he made her the president of the Plaza Hotel. So he didn't like that, and he wanted it out. He told the story. Maybe he was trying it out. I don't think that really happened to him, because again, like I said, he doesn't walk down the street. But in some ways, it doesn't really matter if it happened or not, because mm-hmm. it was an acknowledgement that he was ruined or right. losing t- a ton of money. Right. That's what I took away from it. Right. And he has since mentioned his debt and his his troubles a lot, not lately, but for a while he was mentioning him as a lot as part of his comeback story about yeah. how he overcame how much he overcame to come back and be back at the top. But God knows be probably, you know, laundering money was probably you know a part of that too what what got him back. I think we're about to find out a lot about that. So he did admit to that a little bit on and off as time goes. But, you know, people have told me that Ivanka, his daughter, also told that story later on with a slightly different version that she was walking down the street with him when he told me he was with his wife. So you can't trust him. (laughs) Well, last question for me. Uh, Fundamentally, the same person then as he is now, 
Yes, except as Michael says, a little bit slower in the in the brain, slower on the uptake, thicker of speech, sort of clotted in the brain a little bit more in terms of words and all, but basically very much the same person, the person who doesn't know what's going on and doesn't want to know. And if uh, somebody had told you back then that this guy was going to be president of the United States? Would not have believed it. You know, some people would say that. It's almost like a reflex reaction. Like his book did so well. He's such a golden boy. He ought to run for president. But no one took that seriously. I think America had higher standards in the 80s and the early 90s than, than we do now. Well, on that depressing <laughs> <Yeah>. thought. <laughs> uh, but it's a, it's a great yeah, piece. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we love having your perspective on Yahoo News. Hope to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. It's been fun. Thanks to Seth Moulton and Charlie Learson for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on YahooNews.com, YouTube, and Roku. Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.